Okay. <clears throat> well, you know, we've been studying in the uh, uh, Ephesian, the epistle, of the letter to the Ephesians that Paul wrote uh, back in the first century. And we've been going through the first chapter there where he first had his doxology, right? And he talked about some things. He's reminding the brethren in Ephesus about their great, the great riches they have, the great blessings they have in Christ Jesus. And of course, we could talk about that all day, right? You know, the great blessings, the great riches, and, and probably not really understand what all that means until you really get into the study of it. And we did that. We talked about how Paul talked about the riches, the blessings they have in the Father, right? And in the Son and in the Holy Spirit. And in that Godhead, the one God and three persons, we have tremendous blessings, don't we? We have tremendous riches that we can hang on to, that we can grasp onto, that we can know about, that we can understand, and that we can frolic in, right? That we can have a promise of eternal life. Separate from this world, this world's dark, right? This world is dying. The world is going away, passing away, but we have a hope through the great riches that come through Jesus Christ. And last week we talked a little bit about his prayer for them, which we, we showed he had prayed for, he prayed, he wrote about him praying and up to other uh, congregations as well in Colossae and other, Philippi and other places. But one of the things he mentioned at the end of his prayer was talking about the power of God and how the greatness of his power uh, had done some things. And let's go back and read a little bit that. If you can open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, and I'm going to go back and look, oh, beginning in verse 15 there. <clears throat> he says, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And then notice that verse 19, what he says. He says, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And we talked about that a little bit last week, how that means what for us? It's great power. We have that promise that we are going to be raised again, just like Jesus. We have that example when we become Christians. Romans 6, we are buried with him in baptism, right? Raised to newness of life. And we're going to have that hope when we die physically that we will be raised spiritually with our new body, whatever that is, to be with him eternally. And what a great hope that is. He goes on to say, though, in verse 19, <clears throat> the great power, according to work of his mind, in which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. He mentions two things there. He kind of digresses from, from the, the, uh, the prayer, and he says, Jesus was seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. So at this point, Paul digresses a little bit from what he's talking about here to the idea of Christ being exalted, right? Christ being raised above, ascended to heaven, and it sat down at the right hand of God. And we read about this in many, many verses, don't we? 
It's something we can really grasp a hold of, and we're going to go through that and show you a little bit of that today. But let's continue reading there and what else he says. He says, let's start back in verse 20, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in which, that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave, to him the, gave him to the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. All right. Well, this is something that is worthy of studying, right? The exaltation of Christ. And, and we can understand that in mind, right? And in our hearts, we understand that Christ is exalted. He should be. He's God, right? He's the Son of God. He is all in all. We can understand that. But how does that work in our lives, right? How, how, do, we, how do we know what this means? There are many who say that Christ is not yet reigning in his kingdom. Have you heard that? We studied that uh, maybe, I don't know, a couple years ago or so when we were talking about the end times and a lot of the uh, different views people have of the end times that they glean from Scripture. And you have your premillennialists and your postmillennialists and your amillennialists, right? And there are many that believe that there's going to be a thousand-year reign when Christ comes back on earth and he'll set up his temple in Jerusalem and reign again for a thousand years here on earth with his people. And then at the end, there will be a great judgment, right? And he's, they say that he's not yet reigning in his kingdom. His kingdom has not been established yet, which is a very interesting statement based on what we just read there in Ephesians 1, isn't it? In fact, it's not just in Ephesians 1. I'm going to show you about maybe 10 to 15 more verses that talk about him reigning in his kingdom, and it's in present tense. We'll talk about that in a minute, but what the point I want to make is this is something that is prevalent or relevant, I guess, to us today. In Christendom, you hear a lot about that thousand-year reign, don't you? You hear a lot about the end times. And it's kind of a cool thing to preach about, right? Prophecy and how things are going to end, how the world's going to end. And it's easy to see the current events and say, well, you know, this is happening in the Middle East. There's all this warring and fighting and going on. And it ain't going to be long before he's coming back and he's going to establish that kingdom, right? You can hear about that a lot. I used to have discussions with, the men, with guys at work back, back in the day. You know, we'd talk about that. And I'd say, well, no, I think he's reigning in his kingdom now. If you look at this verse, that's kind of what it says. And they say, no, look over at Revelation where he says his kingdom becomes the kingdom of the earth. It's not, in the, it's, not coming, it's, not a, it's not established yet. So we could argue about that over and over. But today I'm going to show you a lot of verses that deal with this, the exaltation of Christ, and that he is king overall. There are others, like I said, the post-millennials, the premillennials. You have some, Jehovah's Witness, who said it's, we're in the kingdom now, but it just recently was established, not at Pentecost, but as, as we read in the New Testament. <clears throat> Not only does he talk about Christ in this passage, I pointed out he also talked about the church there. Interesting concept, right? He's reigning in the kingdom, and he's the head of his church. And we're going to talk about that a little bit in a minute. Since the Holy Spirit saw fit to lead Paul into this digression a little bit, we're going to take the time to consider what is really revealed here. Remember, it's not Paul, just Paul writing. He's the man, but he is inspired by the Spirit. Christ is 
seated at the right hand of God. And we're going to look at several passages. I'll try to go as slow as I can so you can follow along. And if you didn't get an outline, they're out there in the lobby on the table so you can get these. These verses are in your outline. But let's just look at a few of them. Turn over to Mark 16. And let's read a passage there that talks about this. <clears throat> Mark 16. And let's see what he says. Beginning in verse well, 19. He says, So then after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Now here we have Mark in the gospel saying the same thing that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. He is seated at the right hand of God. Let's turn over to Acts chapter 2 and see what Peter said about that in that first great gospel sermon. Chapter 2. And begin in verse 29. He says, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us today. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. Peter, describing what has happened here. Jesus Christ has been ascended back into heaven and sat at the right hand of God. And I notice, notice what he's talking about, who he mentions first there. King David, right? The throne of David. He says, let me speak to you freely of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried. He's gone. And his tomb is with us today. Therefore, being a prophet, he says David was a prophet. Remember that. And knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. Whose throne? Well, David's throne. David is the king of the Jews, of the Israelites. He is the king on earth at that time when he was here, and his throne is still there. He's raising up Christ to sit on his throne. Interesting concept. Turn over to the book of Hebrews. I'm going to read a few passages from there. Some very interesting passages. And if you studied Hebrews, you know that Hebrews is talking about Jesus Christ being our, what? Our high priest, right? In on the order of who? Remember? Melchizedek? Yeah. You know that stuff. Hebrews chapter 1, and let's just begin in verse 1. It says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. Maybe he's talking about David there, for instance. Has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, then what? Sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. He came to earth, performed the work of salvation, ascended to heaven to sit at the right hand of God. Turn over to chapter 8 there. Let's see what he says there. 
the Hebrew writer. Chapter 8, and let's begin in verse 1. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest, talking about Jesus, who was seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. In case you don't remember who was the high priest in Israel, he was the guy that on the day of atonement was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies. He was allowed to go behind the veil in the temple. Of course, they had to spread the blood of the sacrifice all over the mercy seat to have the incense and stuff to make it murky and not be clear because you couldn't be in the presence of God and have sin. It had to be pure, right? That high priest was in the flesh. That high priest was not perfect. Now we have the perfect high priest, Jesus Christ, who shed his blood that we might have that ability to go into the throne room ourselves with our mediator. Interesting concept, that mediator, that high priest who's also reigning in his kingdom. Hebrews chapter 10, let's look at verse, start in verse 11. He says, And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins, just like I mentioned with the high priest, of the Israelites. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. There's that phrase again. From that time waiting till the enemies are made his footstool, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Interesting how you keep hearing this statement. Chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12, move on there. Beginning in verse 12. <clears throat> Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be... Actually, I went too far. Hold on. Verse 1. Sorry. Chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which is so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance... The race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The Hebrew writer wants us to understand that this great high priest who paid the price for your sin is now reigning in the kingdom. I mean, it looks pretty obvious, doesn't it? Turn over to Colossians. Let's read something else there. Colossians chapter 3. And we actually talked about this a little bit when we were studying Colossians. And verse 1. Colossians 3 and verse 1. He says, If then you were raised with Christ, as you are, from baptism, seek those things which are above, look above, look for God, look for Christ, for Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth, for you died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is, your, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Not only is he the king, we are in him. We have been buried with him in baptism. We are in him. We are his servants. We are his. We've bought, and bought with a price the shedding of his blood. An interesting side note, not so much what we refer to, but turn over to Acts chapter 7. 
And this is a, a reference to it that's even, even more interesting, I think. Uh, Acts chapter 7 and verse 54. This is when Stephen uh, is being stoned. He's about to become a martyr. In verse 54 he says, And when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Point being, where do you say he's sitting, standing? Stephen was able to see Jesus was reigning in his kingdom. That Stephen was part of. And it gave him strength. It gave him the strength to do what? To stand there and continue to praise his name even though he was being stoned to death. You see, that is very important. We know he died for us. That's wonderful news. We know he was raised again. That's even more wonderful news. But there's something going on right now, today, in the present tense that we can grasp hold of, and that is Jesus Christ is our king. And he's alive. And he's in the throne. He's standing at the right. He's sitting at the right hand of God. He is reigning in that kingdom now. What a great source of strength that is. What a great ability to be able to say, I can talk to the God of the universe, the king, straight to him, straight to his face, right to him. I can gain that strength. I can ask him to do something for me, and he'll do it. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? That's a pretty awesome thing to think about. The implication is, first and foremost, this is a fulfillment of prophecy. And this is where I'm going to talk about David. Turn over to Psalm, Psalm 110, and let's read it. This is a Psalm of David, King David, who we just read about. Christ was raised up on that throne, right? To the Israelites, David was the king. And we understand that there was the Messiah to come through that lineage, right? Through that kingship, through that throne. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Who's he talking about here? This is a prophecy. This is King David writing this. He's talking about Jesus Christ, the Messiah. It's a psalm, but it's also a prophecy of the Christ to come. Verse 2, or, uh, verse 1 the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Didn't we read that somewhere else? The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. And the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning. You have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Wait a minute, didn't I just talk about that in Hebrews? Yeah, you see the thing going? This is a prophecy. Hundreds of years before he came. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook of the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. Jesus is a fulfillment of prophecy. Not only 
the Messiah that's to come and shed his blood, provide for us a way for salvation, but to be a king. And by the way, when Pilate was interrogating him, what did he say? Are you the king of the Jews? He says, you say I'm a king, and you say correctly. But Pilate didn't understand what he meant by that. Right? He is a king. Turn over to 1 Corinthians. I want to read another passage that relates to that prophecy there. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now let's begin in verse uh, 20. Paul is writing to the church of Corinth, and he says, But now Christ has risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. Afterward those who are in Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for his, he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Interesting concept. Again, he's reigning in his kingdom, and he's going to reign in his kingdom until that last day. He shall rule in the midst of his enemies. At the right hand of God, he shall judge among the nations. He shall reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. Just as Peter indicated in his sermon on Pentecost, by Christ's resurrection and exaltation, he has been raised to sit on David's throne, and therefore he's truly Lord. Now that probably meant a lot more to the Israelites as it maybe does to us, although we can read about it and understand that, right? To the Israelites, David's throne was sacred, right? That great throne. The king, King David, beloved. But how is that extension in the reign or authority of Christ um, made full? Is it, is, is it something that's partial? Is it something that's complete? Is it something that we can bank on to be Completely true. Let's go back to Ephesians and see what he says there in chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 8, he says, To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable reaches of Christ. And we thank God for that. And to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden, and God who created all things through Christ Jesus, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Interesting concept. Who are the principalities and the powers in the heavenly places? Well, we've talked about that, right? Probably talking about the angels. Probably talking about those who are of Satan's domain, right? There is something that's going on in the spiritual realm that we cannot see physically. But we can know from the Word that it exists. There's something going on there, and I'm not being like Ghostbusters. I, I just watched that the other night, actually. 
you know, it's not, not goofy. That is, it's serious. It's something that's going on in the spiritual realm that we believe and we can understand. That's real. But he's above all. Turn over to chapter 6 there in Ephesians. <clears throat> verse 12. All right, start with verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on that whole armor of God. We just read this last week. That you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. There's that heavenly places again. Again, what's he saying here? It's not that we're warring against flesh. The world is passing away. The world is not eternal. The world is dark. We are in a battle against those who are of the spiritual realm, Satan and his cohorts. We are bought with a price. We're in the flesh now, eventually in the spirit. We are not of this world. <clears throat> what are we saying here? Christ is above all this. Christ is above the, those who are of all the principalities and powers of that spiritual realm. He's above the angels. He's above those who anybody might try to say has great authority. All right? We see the verses. And then an interesting concept about being under his feet. What does Matthew 28, 18 say? Anybody quote that for me? Yes. All power has been given to me on, in earth, and let's just read it. <laughs> but you're right. Chapter 28. And... <clears throat> I can get over there. 18. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What's going on here? He's about to ascend back into heaven. He's giving the apostles the great commission, right? And he says, all authority has been given to me. I am the king. I am the king that's going to reign in that kingdom that will be established at Pentecost. And I will reign forever. And lo, I am with you until the end of the age. See, that's that other thing, right? We have a king who promises to always be with us. Interesting concept. <clears throat> a few other verses. 1 Timothy 6 talks about Paul being, des Paul describes Christ as the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. 1 Peter 3, Peter writes about the angels and authorities have been made subject to him. Revelation 1 and 5, John wrote the that uh, the ruler of the kings, of, he's ruler of all the kings of the earth. So, all these verses point to what? He's in his kingdom, right? And his kingdom exists now. Can you truly say that the kingdom has not been established yet? Is that even possible to mention that? I think the evidence from the scripture is overwhelming, is it not? The apostles of Paul and, the, and Peter and the others constantly reminded the brethren of that in their writings here that he is in his kingdom sitting at the right hand of God. He's greatest, 
He was greatest in this domain when he ascended to heaven to sit at the right hand of God, which was prophesied by Daniel. And I, and I want to show that too, because when someone says he's not reigning in his kingdom, you say, well, it was prophesied that that was going to happen, and it was going to happen at Pentecost and so forth. Turn over to Daniel, if you will, and let's see what Daniel said about that. Um, pretty amazing that we can go back that far. Daniel was way back there, right? About eh, 586, something between 536 and 800 B.C. when he was in captivity anyways. <clears throat> Beginning verse 13, he has a vision. Chapter 7, did I say chapter 7? Verse 13, he says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is the one which will not be destroyed. Daniel was an interpreter of visions. Remember Nebuchadnezzar came to him the dream about the great statue, right? The different pieces of the statue made of clay and bronze and iron representing great civilizations that we can read about in history. And then the last one was the stone that was thrown at the foot of the statue and destroyed it. And that stone represented the kingdom that would live for eternity, that would be there for eternity, the kingdom of heaven, right? Daniel's prophesying about that. The great authority that Christ, the Son of Man, would have. Interesting, isn't it? You can go on and read in Revelation 2 about Jesus referring to the churches of Asia, how he is the King of Kings. Um, the viewpoint of Christ and his apostles that he was reigning over all is prevalent all through the New Testament. But there's a little bit more that he reveals about that, right? He's the head over all things, as he mentions there in verse 22, to the church. What's he mean exactly by that? What is exactly meant by that phrase, to the church? Turn over to Romans chapter 8. Let's read a few verses from that great chapter. I'm going to begin in verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 26. It says, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession. <clears throat> makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good, to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. All right, you've heard Romans 8, 28 all your lives. You could probably quote that, right? And a lot of you would probably say, I don't fully understand what that means. Right? All things work to good for those who love the Lord, for those who are called according to his purpose. It sounds on the surface like, we're going to have, everything's going to be great. Our lives are going to be perfect, right? 
But that's not the case. In reality, our lives aren't perfect. We're in the flesh. We're part of a world. We're living in a world now that's dying, that's passing away. There's great suffering in this world. There's great loss. There's great heartache. Because of sin that came into this world. Yet, Paul can write to the church in Rome that everything works to good for those who love the Lord. Well, what's that mean exactly? Jesus is Lord. He is our King. It doesn't mean we're going to be wealthy. It doesn't mean we're always going to be in our best health. We're in the flesh. But we are servants of the King of the universe, the all-powerful King who's been exalted, ascended into heaven, sitting at the right hand of God. Now, I've talked a lot about having that uh, mindset of eternity, right? We get caught up in our daily lives, the daily grind, going to work, going to school, taking care of the kids, taking care of the yard, taking care of the house, whatever it is we're doing, and we don't necessarily think about that promise we have, do we? We don't have that on our on the forefront of our mind. You know, the people he was writing to here kind of did. You know, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, those letters were written in answer to some thoughts, some questions that people had about when's he coming again? What's going to happen? What are we going to do when that happens? It was on the forefront of their mind. We don't think about that necessarily, do we? Maybe it's until we have a threat that, of death, right? That we really start considering that. Perhaps it's something that should be more on our minds, right? You see, we have this king, we have this Lord who's given us a great example and commands on how we should live our lives. Through that, we have that assurance simply by following him. He died for our sins, that's been taken care of. We believe, we follow him, we live a life in dedication to him, and we are rewarded in the end. That's easier said than done, I know. But it's something that we should keep in mind. He is the king, he is the head of this church, and through him all things work for the good. Whatever God's purpose, whatever Christ's purpose in us is going to be played out, is going to be served through our glorifying Him in the lives that we lead. Can you kind of understand that? That makes sense, right? What's he say there in verse 35? Who shall separate us from, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers. We've just been talking about that nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us 
from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You ought to wake up every morning and read those last five verses. Every day. That's the promise right there. He is our king, and we cannot be separated from him. Sure, we can decide we don't want any part of it anymore, but he has promised to be there with us to the end of the age. That's awesome, man. And because of that, he becomes our Lord, not just our Savior, but our Lord, and we live according to his will. John tells us that Christ asked the apostles if he loved them, if they loved him, now what do you say? If you, love, you, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, right? And at the end, he said, at the, at the, at the Lord's Supper, at the, in the upper room, he says, do you love me? And they said, yes. And he says, feed my sheep, right? Live according to I live, the way I live. Follow me. Do the work that I have given you to do. This is the kingdom of heaven. In 1 Corinthians 3, I don't have time to read all these verses, but he says the world of life, the world or life or death is all ours in Christ Jesus. 1 Peter 5, he says, even the sufferings brought on by Satan can be used by God to perfect, establish, and strengthen and settle us. The sufferings that we can have through Christ Jesus work together for the good. Just like we read about there in Romans 8. So what, what is this church that should be blessed? It's his body. Go back to Ephesians chapter 5 there. Let's see what it says about that church. Verse 28. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife himself, for no one he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. Interesting. Go back to verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. In other words, this church is the fullness of him who fills all in all. You can't say the church does anything for Christ, being king, but you can say, as a bridegroom, well, he's incomplete without the bride, right? As a shepherd, he's incomplete without the sheep. As a vine, he's not going to thrive without the branches, right? And also as the head, he finds his full expression in his body, the church. I know we're out of time. Keep in mind that Christ Jesus has been raised to be king. He is our Lord. We live according to his will. Paul has a little digression here, but I think it's a great example of how we can understand what Christ, what God's plan was all about. He was exalted, sat down at the right hand of God, and he has been made king over everything. If we're part of his kingdom, if we're servants of his, if we've been bought with that price and turned our lives over to him, what else do you need? We have that promise. All right, time is up.